You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Welcome to episode three of our first season. And this is also exciting because it's our inaugural guest. Uh, Recently, I got the chance to sit down and interview Kay Warren, and we'll be sharing that interview today. She and her husband, Rick, planted Saddleback Church in 1980 with a tiny handful of people. And now, almost four decades later, they're still leading it and tens of thousands of people call Saddleback home. Saddleback, of course, is one of the most impactful and influential churches in the world. While Rick is the more well-known face of Saddleback, Kay is a force of nature in her own right, and she's an incredible leader. Her primary leadership came through her fierce advocacy for people battling AIDS, and she led Saddleback into local and global initiatives tackling the massive AIDS epidemic. Uh, More recently, many people know that Kay and Rick suffered a tragic loss five years ago, a loss that Kay will talk about in this episode, and it brings me to mention an important point before we run the interview. My own work on managing leadership anxiety mostly focuses on what I would call chronic anxiety, but what Kay experienced and what she's going to share with us today I would more categorize as acute anxiety based on a horrific traumatic event. It's the kind of event that changes you forever. And I'm deeply grateful to Kay for sharing that event with us and also sharing some thoughts on how a leader takes care of themselves and how they lead when they have faced a traumatic event in their own recent past. Kay covers a lot of ground in this interview. Before we dug into that event, I began by asking Kay about a time when she felt out of her depth as a leader. You know, to be totally honest, I would tell you that is an ongoing, that is a chronic struggle that I have. Uh, The first time that I remember it being a major struggle for me was uh, pretty soon after the church started. And um, we started it in our home. So it's just us and, you know, a few other people. And the people that we attracted most of them were older, a little bit older than us. We were 25. So most of the people were a little bit older or they were brand new Christians. And so they were looking to us for everything. They didn't know anything. They were unchurched, brand new believers. And, um, and I just remember pretty soon, you know, within a year or so after we started that uh, they asked me to do a, a women's event. And I was, I did not have a very high opinion of myself. I was comparing myself to my husband with his gifts, his superpower gifts, uh, his, you know, his leadership, his preaching, his, you know, just his personality, everything. And I just compared myself and found myself very lacking. And I just remember um, driving to this event, sobbing, just saying, God, you have picked the wrong person. First of all, he should be married to somebody much more capable than I am, somebody who knows the Bible better than I do, somebody who's more gifted. I'm going to let these women down. I don't have anything to give them. And um, there's this, I turned on the radio just to distract myself. And there was a song, uh, it's an old song now, but it was called Ordinary People. And uh, the, the lyrics say something like, God chooses ordinary people um, who will Um, give him their all, no matter how small their all might seem to be, because little becomes much when you place it in the master's hands. That those were the song lyrics. And it changed my life. Absolutely. That moment changed my life because I realized that God had made me an ordinary person. 
He hadn't made me a superstar. He'd made me average and ordinary. And, and that was going to allow him to use me in powerful ways if I gave my little to him. And that established a principle for me that has been operational. You know, we've been here now 38 years. And that's a principle that changed my life then but is an ongoing thing for me so that every time God opens a door to some larger ministry or some ministry opportunity that I think is way over my head and way above my ability to to do it, to do it well, I go back to that again. Um, And God chose me to be an ordinary person. If I give him what I have, he will do something miraculous with it. So it, it was a particular incident in time, but it is one of those principles that has carried me because, as I said, that can become a bit of a chronic struggle for me. Uh, that's amazing. So you described that as a turning point. How long did it take for that lesson to really integrate with you? Was this something that happened right away or did it, did it take a while? Uh, probably a couple years. You know, but I mean, it was, it was so strong in that moment. It was such a direct word from God of his both comfort to me that, look, I hear you, but this is the way I made you and, and I love you. And this is, I lovingly chose to make you this way. I could have made you smarter. I could have made you more gifted. I could have made you more beautiful. I could have made you more of everything, but this is the way I chose to make you. And these, my hands lovingly shaped you. So I felt comforted and I also felt um, hopeful, like, okay, I really can, with God's strength, I can do whatever it is he's asking me to do. So it was, it, it was, it was a powerful moment, and then it also took time to get embedded in, in who I am. Kay, you're one of those people that have managed to take something deeply painful and serve others with it. You have such a burden for families of people battling mental illness. Could you tell us how you got into that journey? Mm. Well, it was not a journey I chose, I'll tell you that for sure. Um, Our youngest son, Matthew, uh, was diagnosed with clinical depression when he was seven. And um, he probably could have been diagnosed sooner, but we didn't understand that children could even have mental illness. It just never occurred to us that his problems or his struggles were related to mental illness. We just thought he was different than his older siblings. You know, you you have this thought as a parent, oh, they'll grow out of it. It's a season. Oh, they're a little different, but it just never occurred to us that mental illness was at play. So um, he he began early with um, pretty intense struggles, and they continued through his life for the next twenty years. He fought serious mental illness and um, and then died by suicide, April fifth, two thousand and thirteen. And so being an being somebody engaged with. Um, mental illness and um, other families. Like I said, we didn't, it wasn't like, oh, I will, I've decided I'm going to become a mental health advocate. We, that was the life circumstances that came our way. And even during those years before he died, I had spent a decade as an advocate for people living with HIV and orphans. And, And I loved that work. I loved doing it. And I would have been happy to continue doing it the rest of my life. But then when Matthew died, again, it's like God just took me off of one path and in an instant placed me on another path. And it was like all that I'd learned about advocacy, all that I'd learned about how to engage churches and the faith community. Now we're transferred from HIV to mental illness and suicide. 
And so that's where I've spent the last five years. And as far as I know, that's where I'll continue unless God changes, you know, the direction of my life. So it was, it's really interesting because the, the call to work with people with HIV was a call. It was a direct, one of those two times in my life I heard God speak to me. That was a whole moment conversation with God where he called me to become an advocate. And I said, yes, to become an advocate for people living with mental illness and suicide. That was not a call as much as a, um, oh, I can't even figure out the word I want to use. I, I had no choice. I had a choice whether to become an advocate. I didn't have a choice. This was where I was. I needed to survive. I needed to heal. I needed to learn how to live again. And I knew that I needed to use my pain and our suffering to help others who were in that same exact situation. And so I was, maybe I should say I was compelled. I was called to HIV work in my terms, and I was compelled to work uh, in mental illness and suicide prevention. So many people would just want to retreat because it's so painful. How did you lead while you're suffering and trying to help others? Mm. Well, that's where I'm still living because you don't get over losing a child. You just, you don't, you don't move on, you know, from losing a child. You move through it. And, um, and, and I will live with tears in my eyes. There will never be, I, I cry a little bit every day. He's my son. He was my baby and my beloved child. I can't not mourn him and miss him forever till we see each other again. Um, but, but Rick and I really pulled back. Um, we had the freedom here at Saddleback to take as much time off as we needed after Matthew died. And we took four months and it wasn't, it was just an arbitrary number. It was when we felt ready to come back, uh, we did. And so I think one of the best things that I could say to folks who are going through trauma or loss or grief or just a, an incredibly painful time is to honor, honor your humanity. Because I'm a person before I'm a pastor, before I'm a preacher, before I'm a minister, I'm, 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 I'm a person. And if you don't take care of the person, then you really have nothing much left to give. I think of um, Gail McDonald wrote in her book, High Call, High Privilege. She gives the illustration that she heard um, as a young woman in ministry was that if you build a campfire um, and, and if you don't tend the fire, it will get down to embers and pretty soon there's nothing left if you don't tend the fire. And when we try to minister from those cold embers of our of our lives, of our faith, we really have nothing to give to anybody else. And so I didn't want that to happen. I didn't, I knew that, that, um, everything about our way of life, our faith was threatened. Our faith was threatened. Our marriage was threatened. Our relationship in ministry. I mean, everything just kind of like got thrown up on the table with Matthew's death. And, and we had to make some decisions about how intentional were we going to be about, still being connected to God in intimacy, being connected to each other in intimacy, being in connected to other people. But to do that, we had to tend the fire. We had to pull back. We had to nourish and nurture ourselves, allow ourselves to grieve, allow ourselves to be different, you know, to not try to pretend that we're the same people that we were before Matthew died, because we're not. We are not the same people. There are parts of us that are permanently altered. Um, some of that negatively, 
uh, honestly, you don't go through um, the trauma of suicide without being altered um, in some ways that I'm not as out. I'm not as outgoing. I'm not as willing to put myself out there in big crowds. I'm not as willing to um, play nice. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I I don't have much patience with people who don't have patience with grief, and so I can be a little snarky uh, when when people don't understand grief. Um, so that's not necessarily a good thing. But on the positive side, I feel like my my capacity, both of us, I think, would say our capacity for compassion for those who suffer, um, an identification with those who suffer, um, a willingness to trust God in in the mystery, in the mysterious nature of, of his being, not having to ask for absolute answers for all of our questions. I feel like that's growth. You know, I feel like I'm better in those ways because of Matthew's death, but it alters you. And so as a leader, um, I think we have to be willing to explore what all that looks like and, and honor our humanity, take time to grieve, take time to nurture your spirit, take time to do that deep wrestling with God that is not afraid of the answers and is not afraid um, to ask the questions. There's safety in God's arms to question. And um, I think grief and loss and trauma and uh, painful circumstances put us in that place of wrestling in the safety of God's arms. You know, I, I think that is such a good word. I'd just like to camp on that if you wouldn't mind. I think you've offered something, particularly for type A leaders who are used to managing or controlling or having an answer. One of the comments you made is that you have less patience now for people who don't have patience with grief. You must have sat through so many well-meaning but insensitive comments. Oh, I still get them, you know, five and a half years later. I, I Unfortunately, um, at least here in the West, we pull out the same old chestnuts over and over of, you know, when somebody's gone through a hard time of, um, oh, it must have been God's will, or God must have needed him or her more than you did, or God must have special work for that person in heaven, or at least you can get married again, or at least you can have another baby, or at least this was one that truly was said to me, at least you know where his body is. And, and I think that what, at first I didn't understand that, but then I realized that there are people, when they die, they die in such horrific ways. It could be an accident or, you know, catastrophic, a plane crash. They're torn, their bodies are torn apart. And that is such a stabbing wound to survivors. And so for someone to say, at least you know where his body is, um, I, I can get where that's coming from, but it didn't, it was only a small measure. I didn't, I didn't want his body. I wanted him. And so I just think that we, um, I, I don't know, or people will come up and say, I know exactly how you feel. My grandmother died last year. Or somebody truly said this to me, I, I know how you feel. I just lost my dog. And I tell you, I loved my dog. I loved our dog. I loved that dog. And every time I drive by the spot where she died, I, I get a little... It hurts my heart 10 years later, but let me tell you something, it pales in comparison to my son dying by his own hand. So I, I just think that we, we don't understand grief. We don't know how to do it well. We don't know how to talk about it. We get so uncomfortable with grief that 
of what all it stirs up in us is we're listening to somebody else's grief that most of us are in a pretty big hurry to move through that. So do you think that's why people say something because they're uncomfortable? Well, I, I think that that's part of it, but I also think they just simply don't know what to say. Many times they're trying to help, you know, they're, they're trying to offer comfort and they're trying to, to, but they just don't know what to say. So they end up saying really stupid things or sometimes very, very hurtful things, um, without meaning to. And then there are other people that say things and they actually mean a little bit more. They, they, I remember close to, it'd been about 11 months after Matthew died and I had not preached again at Saddleback. I hadn't been on the pulpit and, um, or on the stage. And I ran into somebody in a parking lot. Um, and she kind of flagged me down as she was driving by and she said, Oh, I, I just miss you. We miss seeing you on the pulpit. We miss seeing you in the pulpit. We miss seeing you on the stage. And I looked at her and I said, you do realize it's only been 11 months since my son died, right? And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, just, I just meant we miss you. At least she had the grace to write me a note and put it on my windshield so that when I came back to my car, there was a note where she said, I'm so sorry. That was so insensitive of me. I was so excited to see you that I didn't think about how my words were hurtful. Well, thank God for people like that who get it, who get that their words can unintentionally stab us when they try to make us move on too fast, when they try to make us not feel our pain, when they try to make us be the old peppy, happy selves that we were. It's, it's, we just don't understand grief, um, especially in the church. You know, we used to have, we used to have a culture when, I, I mean, every culture has um, grieving rites and grieving rituals. And they help people through their grief. And we used to have them here in America, uh, even if we would look at them today and say they were ridiculous, you know, we're black armbands or black clothes or you draped the windows. And that let people know you were mourning. We don't do that anymore. So you, you, you and I pass people every day who could be in deep mourning, but we have no external clue. And so we, we don't ever treat each other with that kind of tenderness. We just kind of plow through our days unaware that, that many are living in grief, serious grief. I could talk a long time about that. It's something I'm passionate about. Oh, absolutely. I think your passion comes through loud and clear. You know, Kay, you're one of our nation's leaders in the field of mental health. Could you tell us how you think the church is doing on addressing mental health today? Mm. Well, I think the church is making some progress. I do, I've been doing this for almost five years now, and <clears throat> I definitely see some progress, um, um, a, a movement maybe in the stigma around mental illness, because the, the stigma is, is enormous, and it's very deeply inculcated in our, in our Christian culture and in our nation. Um, and uh, to see churches being willing to, to let in the reality that mental illness is a brain illness that it, you know, the brain is an organ in the body like any other organ and stuff can go wrong with it. And when it does, it can lead to illness. So I think as people are more aware that, that, um, mental illness can be scientifically, while there is not a single test like there is for, you know, many other, um, many of the other illnesses in the body, they haven't perfected a lot of the tests. We do see just from brain imaging and different things, different parts of the brain being affected by, by um, malfunction and then how that can lead to um, 
someone living with a mental illness. Uh, but mental illness is complicated. Suicide is complicated. Uh, most people, most pastors didn't receive any training in Bible college or seminary. So they come unprepared, you know, into ministry to deal with people living with mental illness, how to minister to them. And um, so I think that that becomes the the first barrier is just the misunderstanding of scripture that says that mental illness is a character issue. And then if we can move past that to, well, it's there's a brain, you know, part of the brain is affected here. Then I think ministers are left with a, ah, well, if it's a medical issue, I really don't know what to do with it because I don't have, you know, medical training. But I love what Dr. John Swinton, um, he's a professor at the University of Aberdeen in uh, Scotland. He's written a book called Resurrecting the Person. Um, and in that, which I, it's one of my favorite books of all time, but in that he talks about what if we shift our view from here's a person with an illness to here's a person with an illness. Because when we put the emphasis on the person who has an illness, well, then the church has so much they can do because nobody deals with the personhood of, of our being like the church. Um, and, and the church, therefore, can really step in and, and do some things that can make a difference for people living with mental illness. We've made an acrostic. We, we're kind of weird about acrostics around here at Saddleback. Rick's brain churns them out like, I don't know, like, like, like gum from a gum machine. He just, he just churns out these acrostics. And he helped me think of this one called church because it's six simple things that every church, every church can do. Sometimes people look at Saddleback and they say, ah, you're a big church. Of course you can minister to people, but what can, we have a hundred people in our church. What can we do? So we say that every, every church can make a decision to care for and support people living with mental illness. I mean, that is an intentional, deliberate decision to read scripture and see God's compassion for people who are sick and have a warm and welcoming um, environment. Everybody can do that. We say that Everybody can help with practical needs. That's the H in church. Um, everybody, it, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, people lined up to bring us meals and took care of our kids and cleaned our house and you know did our laundry. But rarely will you find anybody who says, I was just given a diagnosis of bipolar or I was just given an anxiety of major depression, depressive disorder or, or um, and in, rarely are you going to have somebody say, oh, can I bring you a meal? Can I, can I drive you to your doctor's appointment? So we don't help with practical needs, but we can, and it will make a difference. The, the U in the acrostic is to utilize volunteers. Um, you know, the church around the world has like 2 billion people in it. And, and so there's, it's the largest volunteer pool of uh, every organization is always looking for volunteers. And the church has got 2 billion of them who understand that every member is a minister. And so with just a little bit of training and a little bit of motivation, we can use volunteers, I mean, all the way from compiling lists of mental health services in you know, your town, your city, so that when someone comes um, with a mental health crisis, the pastor is not sitting there going, uh, I have no idea where to send you because a group of volunteers has already um, found resources and the pastor is like, look, here, here's, here's where I know we can you know, get you some help. And then the R is to remove the stigma. Uh, again, it doesn't cost a penny to remove the stigma, to say that people living with mental illness are not weak or um, full of character defects. And it's probably one of the sweetest gifts that we can give 
is to tell somebody you're okay. You're okay and you're okay in our eyes and we want you here. Um, the, the second C is to collaborate with the community. And um, this is one of those places that every church can do. You may not know much about mental illness, but there are mental health professionals in every community who would probably be delighted to come and speak to your congregation and help educate them about mental illness. I, I mean, it's simple. There's the National Alliance on Mental Illness, uh, NAMI, and um, their website, NAMI.org, is just chock full of great, reliable, free information about mental illness. That's one of the ways you can collaborate with the community. And then H, the last H, is to offer hope. Again, that's in the purview of the Church of Jesus Christ. Nobody can offer hope like we can. Hope for the life to come, but also hope for this life. Because sometimes people with mental illness, especially those with serious mental illness, they burn a lot of bridges. They burn bridges between their families, between their friends. And if they end up burning all of those bridges and then the church also casts them out, it can actually be a lethal situation in which people feel they have nowhere to go. But the church can say, you know what, whether you're in recovery, whether you ever are healed, whether you ever manage your illness, able to manage it well, we will not leave you. Um, and that kind of hope is, is powerful. So these things that I've talked about, they're not complicated. They're not, um, they're not intricate plans. They're simple ways of treating other men and women um, with dignity and honor and compassion and practical help. Oh, that's so great. So we keep show notes for our episode. I'd like to go back to the R of church, R being remove the stigma. I, I think I know what you're going to say to this, but the number one stigma that I find among Christians is medication. Could you speak to medication Absolutely. Um, I, I, I believe that medication is helpful for um, many people. It's not for everybody. And there are people who find um, other ways to manage their illness. They, they're very diligent maybe with their exercise and getting good rest and eating nutritiously. And they've learned some stress management techniques. And I think for people, you know, mental illness occur occurs on a spectrum. Um, it, 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 when we say mental illness, we're not, every one of us feel anxious sometimes. Every one of us feel depressed sometimes. Every one of us feel, uh, worried, feel maybe a little out of control. Um, that, that's normal. That's called having emotions. Um, but at some point for some people, those emotions and those reactions start to become problematic and they interfere with work or they interfere with relationships or they interfere with ability to do normal life. And then for some people, that spectrum, as they continue to move down that spectrum, there are some people who become completely disabled by their illness. Maybe if they have schizophrenia, they're hearing voices and um, seeing auditory hallucinations and they simply are not capable of, of managing life because of the severity of their illness. And so on that spectrum, There'll be some people at the lower end for whom medication may not even be, you know, necessary at all. Don't even have to think about it because they're able to manage with, um, like I said, some coping. They've learned anxiety, anxiety coping um, methods. They're eating well. They're monitoring their sleep. They're getting exercise, and they're they're doing okay. 
And then there are people kind of maybe in the middle for whom um, it's beginning to be, they're not managing as well. Maybe the depression doesn't lift after a few days or a week. Maybe it's lasted for six months. And at that point, most definitely, I believe medication is is helpful in um, in protecting people from then the despair that can come toward taking their lives. Um, and then those who have uh, are on that more serious, you know, with um, serious bipolar or schizophrenia, medication is probably going to be a lifeline for them. It's going to allow them to live as 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 a human being rather than someone who is um, out of their mind and um, incapacitated. So to me, again, I say the brain is an organ in the body. I take medication because I have a low thyroid. I will always take medication because it's not likely that my thyroid is going to, unless God chooses to heal me, which he could do if he would like to, but unless he does that, my thyroid is not ever going to function at the level it needs to. And so there's no shame in that. I, I feel like that when we treat the brain as any other organ and that sometimes it needs management, it needs help, it needs medication, um, then, then we can just eliminate that stigma. There's, there's no shame in taking a blood pressure pill. There's no shame in taking a thyroid pill. There should be no shame for taking depression that, that isn't lifting. We've been discussing acute anxiety based on trauma or an event, but many leaders, of course, deal with chronic anxiety, just an everyday struggle that comes with leadership. And one of our theories is that we first notice anxiety in our physiology. So anxiety begins either in a spinning mind, a racing heart, or a tightening gut. Where does it start for you? Probably in my thoughts. I don't know that I'd separate them because... When I'm really anxious, um, I think my, my, I feel a rigidity in my body. Um, I, 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 I get rigid and I, I, if people approach me who maybe want to comfort me or just, you know, give me a little solace for it, I'm more likely to kind of almost stick my hand out and like, like, no, no, don't, don't, don't right now. Um, you know, I, I almost put, I can visualize this barrier that I erect around myself that may be more related to trauma when I'm thinking about it. It probably is. I think that that's more of my trauma response and anxiety. I think of it all the times when I didn't know where Matthew was or if he, if he's going to take his life that day. And, and I think I, that really developed during that period. But so I'll try to separate that and think to just more than more normal anxiety, probably still in my thoughts. Um, I, I think I can easily spin to the uh, worst outcome, you know, that my, my mind actually probably goes first to the worst outcome, you know, a catastrophizing um, response. I know I have some social anxiety. Um, I didn't. I didn't know to call it that when I was growing up. I just knew that I did get anxious in social settings, but I didn't know there was a term for it. Um, I'm I'm an introvert with um, some social anxiety. I don't like the way the call that God has on my life <clears throat> to marry a pastor of a very 
large church and a large, you know, we're in the public eye and he's given me gifts to speak and put me in the, in front of people. But that is all against my natural inclinations. My natural inclinations is to find the potted palm tree in the corner, talk to one person or two, you know, at a social gathering and we'll share deeply, you know, about our lives and the meaning of life and, you know, all that good stuff. Um, but to walk into a crowded room like that and have to be um, to be the social butterfly or whatever, that has always created anxiety. Um, and, and it's just one of those things I've, I've learned my workarounds. You know, I've learned, especially now since Matthew died and my, my uh, emotional capacity is not quite as high, I give myself a little grace. Maybe I skip the, the pre-dinner cocktail hour at a speaking engagement because I simply don't have the energy to, um, to give to them. Um, it's going to, it's going to tax me so much. I need to save the energy I have for the speaking and the greeting people afterwards, but the stand around and hold, you know, your, your seven up and lime in your hand and chat about what I consider to be meaningless stuff. Um, I just, blah. You're describing the challenges of being a figurehead. Could you also think about an example in everyday leadership situations? What kind of everyday relational challenges make you anxious? I think because I didn't often feel prepared for the work. I mean, I have a small staff now. I have my own office and my own staff. I was a stay-at-home mom until Matthew was a senior in high school. Um, So I was super involved in the church and involved in ministry, and I did speaking and teaching, but I didn't work outside the home. I hadn't since, you know, many years earlier. And I had never been the boss. I had always been, you know, an employee. And suddenly I was the boss of my own office and had people reporting to me and people I was responsible for. And um, I think that that has created some definite anxiety because I've often felt unprepared, just that I, that I didn't have the background, you know, that I, that these were not I, I'm a, I'm a cheerleader. I'm a speaker. I'm a teacher. I, I'm not sure that I'm a good boss. And um, so that has challenged me a lot, making sure that I that I am really pouring into to my employees, that I am um, paying attention to them, that I'm not just asking. Uh, I'm kind of a perfectionist, and so that I'm not just asking a lot of them without also uh, telling them what a great job they're doing. But I get anxious that that I'm not, you know, that I don't know how to be a boss. I don't know how to be a good boss. And so sometimes that has caused anxiety. Uh, That's a great answer. Thanks. Kate, give us a tool or two that has helped you de-escalate anxiety in your own life. Well, I used to have a tremendous anxiety. I've really battled anxiety a lot in my life. I used to struggle with hypochondria was one of the places it showed itself um, most profoundly was fearful that everything, I was so aware that what was hap- of what was happening in my body. I used to joke and say, I could feel my kidney shift. Uh, <laughs> I could feel the organs in my body moving. Um, I think you call that highly attuned. Um, in my 20s and 30s, after we had started the church and I, we'd started having kids, and so I was, uh, you know, only been married a few years. Now I'm a mom. Now I'm a pastor's wife. And um, all my own expectations of, of, you know, what 
kind of a leader would I be and what kind of a mom would I be? So I think it showed itself most actively in my body. So if I got a headache, a headache wasn't a headache. A headache was a brain tumor. And if I, um, if I had a stomach ache and some GI problems, it was stomach cancer or colon cancer. E- everything was catastrophic with me. And so I was always going to the doctor and always journaling about how, you know, I might be dying and um, what, would, what would my husband do with this new baby that we had. And, you know, just, it was just wearing me down um, the way that anxiety was, was playing out for me. And um, two things. One, I, I had a, a vision, and I'm not particularly given to visions, but I have had a few in my life that have been um, impactful for me in my own walk. And I had a vision of myself in a boxing ring, and it was me and the devil <laughs> boxing it out. And he was using anxiety to keep knocking me to the ground and keeping me in that terrified place that something terrible was going to happen. And um, and then in this vision, Jesus got in the ring and just did a knockout. I mean, he, he knocked Satan on his butt. And um, it, it, that visual of Jesus fighting for me and that I wasn't fighting anxiety alone and that I wasn't fighting um, by myself, that I, I really did have a protector and a savior and a better boxer than me in the ring. And that was a mind shift um, that I decided I came away from that time thinking, I'm going to choose faith first and then fear. Now, I'm not, I don't know, you know, I don't know the theology. I don't know the psychology or any of that. All I can tell you is that it made a mind shift for me because the next time I had a headache, I said, I'm going to choose to believe that everything is okay. And if after a period of time, I'm not better, I will go to the doctor. And if there's a reason to be afraid, I'll be afraid. But I'm not going to start with fear. Um, That was a huge shift for me. The other was Rick taught me to write down, um, it's it's a cognitive behavior therapy thing, I think, where you write down, you use cards to try to change your thinking. Because... I've learned that the mind can't hold two opposing thoughts. So I can't be um, terrified and be full of faith, you know, at the same time. So it was like I would write down, um, I, I was, there was a period in which I really thought anybody could be a better mother, you know, anybody on the planet could be a better mother than I was. I'm just so full of fear, so full of anxiety, so full of doubt. And so I went through the book of Proverbs and I wrote down verses that talked about how God, um, you know, how God is our father and God loves us and how God provides for us. And, and so then I would write that verse on one side of the little three by five card. And on the other side, I would write um, a positive, faithful state, faith filled statement that with God's help, I can listen to my children when they talk rather than be impatient you know, and so then I would go over those cards of these affirmations of this is who the person I wanted to be, and that with God's help I could be. And so I would tie those aff- uh, affirmative statements to scriptures, and I just kept those cards went over and over and 
over and over in them. And I would say after a period of time, it felt like those new neural pathways were, were built and I no longer lived in that same kind of anxious place. And I've used those cards and different cards throughout the years to help me with, to manage anxiety. Oh, that's so good. I think you've really captured a dynamic that people aren't always aware of, that anxiety's power to block our awareness of God's presence. It is. So you describe cognitive behavioral therapy as a Romans 12 renewing of our mind's awareness. There is so much on that, and they're learning more and more, as I'm sure you know and your listeners probably know. There is more and more evidence every day that we really truly can renew our minds. Um, And you're saying it takes intentionality and structure? It does. It takes structure and it takes a commitment to it. And, you know, we're so, we're so in the, we want things to happen in a moment. We want those miraculous healings where people stand up and say, I was, I was addicted to drugs and then Jesus healed me and I've never gone back or I smoked for 50 years or I had anxiety for 50 years and Jesus, and we, and Jesus does that. He does that. He just doesn't do it as often as he uses other methods that involve us cooperating with that process of um, actual work on our part. Yes. This next question is the most personal I ask. When do you feel most loved in your life? One is um, we, we live on the edge of a canyon, and I have what I call my perch, it's a, it's a part of a metal railing that goes, uh, a ladder that goes down into a lower part of, of our yard. And I sit there in between the two rungs of that ladder and look out at the canyon. And if I'm early in the morning, if, I'm, if I just sit there quietly, the birds will come. And they come in droves, every kind of bird in Southern California, from little finches to woodpeckers to blue jays to hummingbirds to crows to hawks to birds I can't even identify. But if I'm quiet and I just sit there, the birds surround me. And hearing them call and hearing their, seeing the beauty of each individual species of bird, um, there's something about it that it feels almost as though I'm in I mean, I have my eyes closed right now as I'm talking about it because I'm visualizing it is uh, this this moment of peace that is so beautiful. Um, I f- I feel completely cared for by God. I, I I meditate on just that same verse on over and over that if He knows when a sparrow falls, He knows what happens to you. And I watch these birds and I think, how is that even possible? that God could know when even one of these birds in this one tiny corner of the globe um, falls, how much more is his love for me? How much more am I his beloved? And that is a moment of everything is right in the world for me. The other one is probably in a relationship. Um, I think with, um, with Rick and we've been married 43 years and, uh, Matthew's death has has brought us closer. I was always worried that it might draw us apart because we had so much conflict in the last five years of Matthew's life when his illness was just devastating and created so much turmoil and chaos in our family. <clears throat> and we found ourselves often on um, 
with differing points of view of how we should handle it, how we should, uh, what should we should do. And it just created such conflict. And I, I wasn't worried ever that we would divorce. That's not an issue. I was just worried that some of the, the emotional intimacy might be lost in the recriminations um, if he were to die, if Matthew were to die. But the, the truth is we are closer than we've ever been. And I think as we have walked through grief together, letting each other mourn, honoring each other's grief, um, holding each other in unspeakable sorrow, <clears throat> I, I do believe that when, you know, Rick holds me and hugs me in that full recognition of my, the depth of my own sorrow, I, I feel both his love and I feel God's love and, um, it's, it is an anchor for me. Uh, thanks for sharing that. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, last question. What activities or places make you feel most human and alive? Mm. <clears throat> Pardon me. Well, the birds. I love the birds. Um, I don't want to own one. I just want to look at them. They're too dirty to own. <laughs> They're messy. They're messy little critters, but I, I love to look at them. Um, I do feel alive when I am outside. I am not a person that has to climb the mountain peaks or, you know, swim to the depths of the ocean. I, I'm not experiential. I'm much more of a beer than I am a doer. And so to sit in contemplation of, of the beauty of God's earth, and I appreciate, I think I have an appreciation for every Every landscape, whether it's desert or mountain or sea or city, I, there's just something about this world that God has made that speaks to me. And um, I derive a very strong sense of well-being uh, from the world that God has created. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. Kay, thanks so much for your time and for sharing your wisdom. I just, I so appreciate your ministry and the impact you're having on people. Thank you, Steve. It's really good to speak with you. We'll have some of the links that Kay mentioned on our show notes. You can go to managingleadershipanxiety.com. You can also go to stevecusswords.com. It'll lead you to the same place. I'm also going to link a recent article that Kay wrote on her blog, kwarren.com. The article's called Sitting on the Edge of Hell, and it's a very poignant article. I think it's well worth everyone's time. Also, you can find us on Facebook. Managing Leadership Anxiety has our own Facebook page where you can follow me in all the usual places on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. My handle is Steve Cusswords, and we look forward to catching up with you next time. This episode is a production of Steve Cuss and Brendan Reed.